2: I'm Emily Tampkin, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Thursday, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. And every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Today, I'm speaking to Congressman Ro Khanna. Representative Khanna is a Democrat from California and also the author of a new book, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Congressman, thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you, Emily, for having me on.
2: So I will, I do want to get to your new book, but first we are speaking basically as we begin the second year of the Biden administration. I think as the second year kicked off, there were some who looked around and said the federal voting rights legislation didn't pass and, and build back better. that important piece of Biden's domestic agenda is still stalled in the Senate. For, for people on the left or, or in the Democratic Party or liberals who are feeling like the wind has been taken out of their sails as we head into the second year, what is your response?
3: I understand the frustration, but I would say let's look at the whole record. First, we passed the American Recovery Plan that was an expansion of the child tax credit that provided people with stimulus checks that had massive investment in our schools, that had a significant commitment to housing, and then we had the infrastructure bill that's going to finally provide affordable broadband to every American in this country, that is going to start the process of removing lead pipes, that's going to start the investment in electric vehicles. I'm not saying that this is in any way sufficient, but it is a strong start. We have to pass the climate provisions at the very least in Build Back Better. That should be our priority. And we have to pass whatever we can in in voting rights. Is it as much as I would have liked? No. But that just means that we've got to do whatever we can, particularly in climate and voting rights in 2022.
2: We had spoken recently, and you mentioned this idea of taking the issues within Build Back Better or within the, the domestic agenda and addressing them a week at a time. So you do one, you do climate one week, you do healthcare one week, you do childcare one week. Can you speak a bit about why you think that might be an effective way of going about it?
3: Absolutely. First, we ought to get a vote in a conversation on those things that we may not have the the votes for. So let's talk about a $15 minimum wage and vote on it so we can show the country that it's actually the entirety almost of the Republican Party that's standing in the way of working families getting a raise. Let's do that on childcare. Let's do that on paid family leave. And then there are areas where I think we can get things passed, and that is on climate, the innovation money for investment, four to $500 billion on universal preschool. Every three and four year old kid should get to go to preschool in this country on expanding health insurance. So let's do a skinnier version that can pass of Build Back Better, call it something new. And then for the things that didn't pass, have vote after vote. This way we'll be taking control of the agenda instead of seeming that we're being buffeted by events and don't have control in delivering.
2: I think there there has been much ink spilled, some of it by me, on the division between the progressive wing and the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party You are somebody who I think is, you can push back on this if you disagree, but who's seen as being able to speak to both camps and to everyone in between. What do you think the message should be from progressives to moderates and from moderates to progressives?
3: From progressives to moderates, it should be two things. One, the climate can't wait. This is our moment. We have to act or we will be judged by history harshly. And two, we have to deliver for working families. If we don't, we give more fuel to right-wing populism, the message from moderates should be to progressives: Let's take what we can get instead of getting nothing, and let's be pragmatic. We may share your aspirations, but this is what's going to get fifty-one votes. Get on board.
2: Well, so relatedly, I think there are some people when, who hear we have to do climate and voting rights, and they they hear that and they respond, "Well, what about you know, what about child care? What, what about child care? What about education? What about all these other issues? What is sort of your response to that?"
3: I hear you. But politics is about priority. Politics is about choosing. And we have to see what our most urgent priorities are. The voting rights is a matter of our democracy itself. If We don't fix the Electoral Count Act. You literally could have President Biden win Arizona 5248 and have the Arizona legislature send in a slate for Trump. Uh, so let's at least fix that. Let's do whatever we can to safeguard voting rights for black and and brown communities. And climate, if we don't do that now, and no one knows the outcome of the 2022 election, we may miss the next few years in doing anything. I would just argue that those have to be our highest priority.
2: And are you optimistic that those will get done before the the midterm, the congressional elections later this year?
3: I am, but I'm not overconfident. It Mm -hmm. can get done if we have... Uh, extraordinary mobilization. And if the progressive community recognizes we have to compromise and take what we can get. And if the president continues to engage as as the White House is on getting the 51 senators on board.
2: On White House engagement, is there something that you would like to see from the Biden White House in the year to come that maybe you feel you didn't see enough of
3: last year? I I believe the president has to be the closer here and has to be willing to look at whatever Senator Manchin wants within reason to say that's the 51st vote, say, okay, I can't get behind it. This is going to be four or 500 billion of climate. This is going to be every kid gets preschool in this country. And then come and say, I need every Democrat on board and to close the deal. So the president in the last year, understandably and appropriately was trying to play broker, make sure every voice was heard. and, And I think he did a very good job of getting to the framework. Now, I think the president just has to say, we've got to get something done. I'm going to be the closer. Here's the pragmatic reality. Here's how I get something done. My guess is you'd have a Democratic caucus, including a progressive caucus, willing to listen.
2: Mm-hmm. And you're you're in the progressive caucus. So just for our listeners, know of what you speak when you say that, yes, the progressive caucus would by and large be on board with that.
3: A, I am fairly convinced that uh, most progressives will be very enthusiastic about it from the ones I've talked to. I can't think think of a single progressive, I could be wrong, but I, uh, I can't think of a single one who would vote no on a bill that had the biggest climate investments in our history and that for the first time gave every three-year-old and four-year-old access to preschool education.
2: So two stories that are in the news this week that I wanted to quickly ask you about before we turn to your book and tech. The first is Russia and Ukraine. You are somebody who for years has advocated a less confrontational approach with Russia. You've recently written and tweeted along these lines. Would you say that recent events in Russia vis-a-vis Ukraine have reaffirmed that view or were challenged it? Let me be clear.
3: What Putin is doing in aggression is totally unjustified, uh, totally illegal, uh, and immoral. And we can't put up with an authoritarian leader who just decides that he's going to invade a sovereign country with Ukraine. So the president has been appropriate to say all of this need to be on the table, that we can have crippling uh, financial sanctions if Putin uh, were to uh, move, and that we uh, have, are going to exhaust diplomacy, but that Putin should be aware that there is a significant threat that serves as a deterrent but it is in our interest to then exhaust diplomacy and come up with a solution that ensures the security and independence of Ukraine without escalating the conflict. I just read this morning that China is coming to Russia's defense. In my view, that's totally wrong from a moral perspective, but the last thing we want to do is push Russia into China's corner, and then that becomes a broader challenge for the United States in the 21st century. So the president, in my view, uh, is doing the right thing by giving uh, Blinken every tool possible to resolve this.
2: The other story that captured headlines this week is that Justice Stephen Breyer has announced that he will retire, is going to be able to be replaced by Biden. Obviously, you are in the House, not the Senate, so you were not directly involved in what I'm sure will be a very exciting next few weeks and months in that regard. But who would you, if you have an opinion on either an individual you would like to see or just the sorts of issues that you would hope this justice would take seriously. I would like to share them. I'm asking just in case.
3: Well, I am very excited that President Biden is going to nominate an African-American woman. What a moment of history. Unbelievable that an African-American woman hasn't been on the court yet. And there's so many uh, extraordinary candidates. And certainly it's uh, beyond my expertise to be opining and recommending one of them. I can just say that I will be enthusiastically supporting the president's choice. I have confidence in his team and in his judgment uh, to pick an extraordinary person who can have a, hopefully a legacy for decades on our court. Wherever
2: you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?
1: Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you.
2: Shifting gears, your book is on dignity in a digital age. The subheading is making tech work for all of us. Why and how did you decide that for this book, you wanted to focus on tech?
3: I represent a place where there's so much optimism about America. Young kids are optimistic. And we have over $11 trillion of market cap. And I said, how is it that you can have that in my district? And yet across America and communities, you've seen deindustrialization, the offshoring of jobs, the new economy hasn't worked for communities. How do we get more communities a chance for participating in the modern economy? And that's the thesis of the book. And it's not just about tech, it's about economic revival and possibility and hope for the future in places that don't see the world that way right now.
2: When we look at at tech in America today, there is this optimistic side. And then there are also people who point out, well, wait a minute, this is exacerbating inequality. Some of the richest people in America right now are in the tech sphere or sector, and that's not fixing inequality in America. Can you speak a bit about how to capture and pass around that optimism and, and not let Tech become yet another further unequal, inequitable sector in American life.
3: Well, I mean, I think there are two things that have have to happen. First, we have to tax the billionaires. We have to tax corporations. There's a frustration that some of these corporations just aren't paying enough tax, and that the mm-hmm. billionaires aren't paying enough tax. But that's not sufficient. We can't have all the wealth generation happen in a few cities, tax these folks, and then provide a handout uh, everyone else or, or a check to everyone else. What people want is an opportunity to participate, to create value, to contribute. And that's what I talk about. How do we decentralize the innovation economy? How do we democratize it? How do we make sure you can stay in your hometown in a rural community, in a mid-sized city, in a community that's heavily African-American or Latino, and still start a small business, still work for a tech company, still be part of the 25 million digital jobs that will exist?
2: Your first book came out a decade ago, Entrepreneurial Nation, Why Manufacturing is Still Key to America's Future. So much, I, There are some constants, obviously, over the past decade, but a lot has changed in terms of manufacturing, in terms of how we view entrepreneurship, in, tr- in terms of tech we've had, the Trump presidency was in the middle of that. How has your thinking on manufacturing tech and entrepreneurship evolved over the past 10 years?
3: That's a great question. No one has asked me that before. I am still as optimistic about the need to have manufacturing in this country, the importance of manufacturing to our national security, to our economic prosperity, to a region's uh, economic vitality. I I think I see the intersection, though, between tech and manufacturing far more. You look at Intel going to Ohio, to New Albany, and that to me is this extraordinary intersection, 3,000 manufacturing jobs, but it's being driven by a chip company, a technology company in the heart of my district. Or you look at General Motors, and a lot of their manufacturing jobs are tech jobs in, in the designing of these cars. So there are a lot more hybrid tech manufacturing jobs today than I, they were were ten years ago. and I guess you, it's just a sense of how much more we've seen the digitization of our economy.
2: And you've introduced both the Endless Frontier Act and the twenty first century Jobs Act. Could you speak a bit about both of those and why why you think they why you believe they were important enough and contained enough potential enough to introduce?
3: The Endless Frontiers Act uh, is basically about having more intels to Ohio's. It's about creating new technology hubs with manufacturing jobs, construction jobs, innovation jobs in communities across this country and in the South. It's the largest investment in science and technology since the Cold War and creating these tech hubs across America in leading technology areas. And I'm very optimistic that that will pass. It's going to pass the House and then work on conferencing it with the Senate and getting it to the president's desk. And the, the 21st Century Jobs Act? The 21st Century Jobs Act is part. It became the Analyst frontiers that became now the Innovation Competition Act. So the central mm-hmm. ideas in the 21st Century Jobs Act are embedded in what we're doing now. The 21st Century Jobs Act was much more ambitious and had even more funding and more support for technology hubs in many parts of the country. Uh, this is a smaller version of it, but mm-hmm. it's a good start.
2: But this speaks to what you were, what we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, which is beginning with the most ambitious, asking for everything that you should be included, using that to work a framework, and then from that coming up with what's achievable and pushing for that. Would you say that this is an example of that?
3: Absolutely, this is exactly what we we're talking about. Would I like to have President Biden say, "I'm going to pass Rocon as 21st Century Jobs Act, so every person in this country can have access to the digital economy, and we create 50 tech hubs"? Yes. But am I happy that we have a bill that's very strong and that we make it Ted and Ted Cubs and we're on our way to uh, preparing for the 21st century economy? Yes. And I think that was a big lesson for me. I could have just said, I want the 21st Century Jobs Act, worked with two MIT professors, been on podcasts all over the country, and it wouldn't have moved. Instead, I partnered with Senator Schumer, who's been brilliant on this, and two Republicans, Todd Young and Mike Gallagher. We came up with the Endless Frontiers we've done we've been at it for 3 years we have made a lot of compromises along the way to build a coalition and that's how you get legislation done
2: so i guess this will bring me to my final point which is we spoke about compromise between progressives and moderates within the democratic party do you think that in the next year it i i think as a person watching this and covering this it's very easy to become not cynical but pessimistic we're heading into it's a it's an election year there's already so much politicization and partisan partisanship and a lot of at sometimes bad faith arguments from some on the right and occasionally some on the left um, about engaging with the other party. What are the areas where you think there, there can be bipartisan cooperation? And do you think that bipartisan cooperation is a good, right? Or is it something that we, we in the press sort of tout as being valuable that isn't?
3: Well, I don't think bipartisan cooperation is the holy grail. I don't think that's mm-hmm. the end in itself. Let's just do something bipartisan. There was a bipartisan consensus to go to war in Iraq. There's been Bipartisan consensus for things that have not been been good. But I think where you can build bipartisan consensus for good policy, it should be a goal because it allows you to get broader public support. It's harder to repeal those things, it's more, more durable. And often it makes you more effective. So I don't compromise my ideals, but I am willing to compromise in the application and tactics to build those bipartisan coalitions to achieve concrete outcomes and be effective. And ultimately, I who knows how long I have in co- Congress or in public life, but I don't want to just be a, a thought generator, an mm-hmm. idea generator. I want to be a, a effective. If I wanted to just be a thought generator, I probably would have done what I my, my original goal in life was and become a professor somewhere and taught. But being in the public arena, you want to actually get move the needle.
2: And just to follow up, are there particular areas where you think yeah, we we can move this needle, either through through cooperation within the party or cooperation between Democrats and Republicans.
3: Yes, there are a number of areas. Endless Frontiers, the Innovation Competition Mm -hmm. Act is one of them. There are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who think we ought to be making semiconductors here, making more technology, advanced technology in the United States, and we ought to be doing it around the country. We ought to be cooperating on more restraint in foreign policy. I've been successful in trying to stop some of the support of the Saudis of the Yemen war in building coalitions. We ought to be focused on investing in our land-grant universities and pro- public-private partnerships on that. That's something thats that I've been a- a- actively engaged on in a bipartisan way.
2: Before I let you go, is there anything about any of the subjects we covered today, be it the Democratic Party, Congress and the Biden White House, foreign policy, tech, bipartisanship, anything that I did not ask that you would like to uh, to share? Floors the, the, the podcast floor is yours.
3: I understand the anxiety and frustration that people feel uh, around the country. We've had two years of a pandemic that most of us have underestimated. I know I certainly did. We've had hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people die. We've had a insurrection uh, attempt on January 6th in when we were supposed to have a peaceful transfer of power. And now we have state legislatures uh, really undermining people's access to the ballot and trying to game a system to have someone who doesn't win the popular vote be elected president. But when I look at the long trajectory of America, when I look at my own life story, of the son of immigrants was born in Philadelphia, grandson of someone who spent four years in jail with Gandhi and now have the opportunity to represent this multiracial, multiethnic place, in the heart of Silicon Valley. I am still hopeful about this country's ascent to become a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. I'm still hopeful that if we engage in this new generation's ability uh, to uh, get there, it's a harder slog than I thought it would be after Obama's election. It's not the same euphoria I felt in 2008, but I believe we will get there. Uh, And I just hope that people will not give up that sense of engagement and activism because our biggest danger is not to lose, but is to trigger an apathy and disengagement from politics, uh, where, as Plato said, the price of in- that inaction is to be then ruled and governed by those who are of worse character. And that is the real danger for our society.
2: On that cautiously optimistic note, Congressman Ro Khanna, thank you again for taking the time. Thank you. This has been the World Review from The New Statesman. You can read all our international coverage on NewStateSpin.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or even an enemy and rate us and leave us a nice review. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back on Thursday. And I am Emily Tampion. Thanks for listening. And until next time.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend.